Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. In 1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing and better schools. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ros Taylor, and this is the story of how we were promised jam tomorrow. What on earth do we make of the Germans? How on earth do we fit them into our worldview, given all the terrible things we discovered they've done? If stoicism wasn't seen as a dominant response to things like air raids, then morale could really, really quickly break down. The scale of the British attacks were way beyond anything that the Germans had felt able to mount in 1940-41. The pro-leave camp were very into the idea of Britain alone. We can do it alone, again. About a decade ago, I met an elderly veteran on Victoria Station who was selling poppies. I asked him where he'd fought. It was D-Day, when the Allies invaded Normandy. It was nothing like they tell you, he said. I often think about that man. Here are some of the things we think we know about World War II. Keep calm and carry on was the slogan that got us through the Blitz. That in 1941, Britain stood alone and that the largest single loss of civilian life during the war happened when the Germans dropped a bomb on Bethnal Green tube station. But none of these things is quite true. In this first episode of Jam Tomorrow, I'll be looking at how we remember the Second World War, how much we think we remember, and how it still shapes the way we live and think in the 21st century. We'll see how the campaign to leave the EU drew on those myths we've nurtured to make Brexit not a boring technical matter of how to leave a trading bloc, but a liberation from German-led oppression. I'll be delving into the home intelligence reports that the government commissioned to find out what people were really thinking, talking to historians about some of the iconic symbols of World War II that sometimes turn out to have more to do with aspiration than reality. We'll hear how British air commanders learnt lessons from the Blitz and used them to destroy German cities at the end of the war. How a tragedy at an air raid shelter was hushed up and even blamed on Jews. The abandoned plan to ship hundreds of thousands of children abroad to Britain's former colonies. Why Nazism became a staple of British comedy and boys' comics and what the Germans really thought of us after the war. What will it take for us to see the Second World War clearly? Do we need to move on? When it comes to the war... Are we the ones who are deceiving ourselves? These are uncomfortable questions. They go to the heart of who we think we are. You know, if you're going to have a foundation myth, it might as well be the one where you destroy Nazism. Only a handful of people in Britain still remember fighting in the Second World War. More remember living through it as children. But in a decade or so, the war will have almost passed from memory, just as the First World War already has. It's passing into history, and soon everything we think we know about it will be second-hand. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say... 
This was their finest hour. Memory is essentially a, a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for how societies use a sense of the past to shape narratives in the present, essentially how they put a sense of the past to use in effect. But memories are also personal. So memories can be personal, but they can also be collective. Kasia Tomashevich is a historian of the Second World War who has worked with the Imperial War Museum. Memories are constructed at a time, but then they are also framed after the fact. And I think the Second World War is really interesting in this regard because you certainly see it now that it's put to use in a whole host of kind of different political ways. So certainly around the Brexit referendum, the pro-leave camp, I would say particularly a right-wing strand within the pro-leave camp were very into the idea of Britain alone. We can do it alone again. So how can we find out what people were really thinking at the time? While I was researching this series, I came across a trove of extraordinary wartime documents that the Institute of English Studies at the University of London have posted online. They were compiled by the Ministry of Information and called the Home Intelligence Reports. The Ministry had several sources of information, including censors reading letters posted abroad and local committees, but a lot came from between 200 and 400 people in each region who would pass on information to an intelligence officer. The idea was to find out what people were really thinking about the war and the way the government was handling it. What were they complaining about? Did they think Britain would win the war? And as it dragged on, what kind of society did they want to live in when it was over? Among the more clear-cut comments from the postal censorship, a forecast that the younger generation will play a big part in altering things for the better, that... The old school tie will be burnt at the stake and that there will be a return to the land. The reports reflect human life in all its messy, resentful, dogged complexity. Disgust at the behaviour of evacuees and women sleeping with US soldiers. More anti-Semitism than people would like you to remember. A desire to punish Germany for bombing raids. But the government wasn't just monitoring what people were thinking about those raids or food shortages or girls hanging around air bases. Keen interest continues and there is a great demand for a prefabricated house to be erected in other parts of the country as well as in London, even to the extent of wanting one set up in every provincial town to show people what they are like. Just as people spent time locked down during Covid making plans for what we do when we could go out again, people talked a lot about what life could be like after the war. And what they heard was a big ask especially for a Conservative government. Some people believe there'd be an end to class distinctions, a workers' revolution inspired by what had happened in Russia. There seems to be a desire, largely unexpressed, for greater social security after the war. And it is stated that the success of Russia has tended to prepare the public mind for alterations in the present order of society. Professor Lucy Noakes is a historian of modern warfare at the University of Essex. You needed people to to kind of sympathise with and feel solidarity with, with the Soviet Union. But at the same time, you didn't want that to slip over into a kind of an admiration for the political system or for the social system that they had there. They wanted an end to shortages, queuing and half a pound of butter a week. People who'd been bombed out needed new houses. Discussion about what is going to happen after the war is increasing. The majority, when they speak of it, are afraid things will be just as bad afterwards. Inequalities of sacrifice and reward, apparent in our own system, are also said to increase this leaning towards socialism. The following factors are suggested as causes of this tendency. A levelling up of classes, resulting from bombing and rationing. The Russian successes. The blaming of vested interests for the ills of production. The fear that conditions of the last post-war period may be repeated. And the reward for winning the war was the beverage report and all the improvements it promised, and especially a national health service. That prize would help people hold the line when things got tough, but it was also a way of tackling the pockets of admiration for Russian communism that the Ministry of Information could see popping up around the country. It was incredibly popular. It's really hard to imagine now a government report, a white paper, selling out. But it went through, I, I can't remember, something like 15 or 16 different editions because it sold out so quickly. People wanted to read it and wanted to see what was being, what was being suggested. Still, a lot of people thought that the things in the report would never materialise. The public as a whole wants the government to implement the beverage report. The detailed contents of the report, even the simpler financial details, are not generally known. The report is seen as offering security against unemployment, ill health and old age. But even more, it is seen as the touchstone of the government's intentions for the post-war world. It is widely, if not generally, 
believe that the report has been shelved or that the public will in due course be offered a watered-down version. You can see augurs of many of the things that have preoccupied us as a nation ever since in the war. Class, the NHS, property, our growing indifference to the Church of England, our love of shopping and consumer choice. For almost a year after the beginning of the war in 1939, things were quiet on the home front. People talked about a phony war. But that all changed in 1940 when German bombers started to target British cities. In the autumn of 1940, bombers hit London every night. And the bombing continued on and off for the rest of the war. But while there have been dire predictions of people fleeing London and suffering lasting psychological trauma, a kind of stoicism began to prevail. Raids continued to be faced bravely. They're the main subjects of comment both in the postal intercepts and in bookstall conversations. The degree of nervous shock among those rendered homeless is extremely small. Many overcome the blow, apparently, by telling exciting tales of what happened and of their escape. Those who are depressed are so largely because of loved ones killed or injured. Often Union Jacks, pictures of the King and Queen, Heather and horseshoes are put up on damaged property. That, at least, is the story we often tell ourselves about the Blitz of fortitude and bravery in the face of personal catastrophe. But the reality was sometimes more complicated. And as what happened at Bethnal Green shows, the authorities were well aware of the potential for morale to crack. Lucy Noakes explains what happened. There were always attempts to manage how we give voice to emotions in public because, you know, it can be kind of contagious if one person in an air raid shelter starts kind of screaming and crying. Other people might then start to you know, kind of give voice to that as well. And that's certainly what they were worried about during the Second World War, was that if stoicism wasn't seen as a dominant response to things like air raids, then kind of morale could really, really quickly break down. And morale is really central to war. It's particularly central to wars where air war is involved and where, you know, civilians are at the kind of the heart and one of the main targets of war. 173 people died in the Bethnal Green tube disaster in 1943, but they weren't killed by a German bomb. What happened was, one night later on in the war, after the main period of the Blitz, the air raid siren went off, and as it went off, a couple of buses full of people were passing what was going to be a new tube station in Bethnal Green and was a temporary air raid shelter. At the same time as the buses stopped to let people get off to go down to the air raid shelter, a cinema just over the road came out and the people from the cinema started to go down the stairs as well. Other people passing, coming out of pubs, passing on the street, came down. And what's supposed to have happened, apparently happened, is that people were were surprised or frightened by really loud explosions, which turned out not to be bombs, but to be new anti-aircraft batteries in Victoria Park nearby, just up the road. And the long and the short of it is that somebody slipped on the stairs because they were dark and slippery and ill-lit and they were full of people. And I think 173 people died in a crush. Now, it's awful. And it also doesn't fit our kind of stories of the Blitz, of kind of stoicism and, you know, standing up to it and singing our way through yeah, you know, seeing our way through air raids. And there was a real attempt by the government not to completely suppress any kind of talk about this or kind of mention of it, but people were asked not to talk about it. They weren't told they couldn't, but they were it was kind of suggested in all kinds of places, in schools, in local neighborhoods, in the hospital where the, the dead and the wounded were taken. People were asked kind of, you know, probably best if you don't really mention this. And the inquest was put off and it it was conducted, but it was conducted in private because they were worried it had been driven by panic. And the kind of results of the inquest weren't made public until after the end of the Second World War because they were worried that if the newspapers picked up on this and made a big story out of it, it could kind of fatally undermine the idea of this kind of stoical people standing up heroically to air raids. But the recommendation to stay Sturm backfired and some people started rumours that Jews were somehow to blame. People everywhere have been shocked and mystified by this appalling shelter tragedy. Two regions, London and the North Western, have been most consistent in reporting anti-Semitism. The suggestion that the trouble was occasioned by the Jews is reported from all parts of London, with the exception of Bethnal Green, where there is full knowledge that any such statement is untrue. The deputy PM, Clement Attlee, wanted to explain what had really happened to stop the false anti-Semitic rumours. 
but Churchill couldn't countenance admitting that the deaths had been caused by panic. Still, there were times when the Ministry of Information did want the truth to emerge. They didn't want to demoralise people, but at the same time, they were desperate for the United States to join the war, and footage of bombing would help that cause. Frederick Taylor is a British novelist and historian who specialises in modern German history. We've heard about the bombing of Coventry in 1940, but as Fred Taylor explains, we hear more about that because the government decided to reverse its usual policy of playing down German bombing raids. Coventry was the lot of longest duration and caused the most casualties of any bombing, individual bombing raid by the Germans so far in the war. In a way, that makes it a bit of an anomaly because, firstly, apart from London, the government tended to just say, you know, there'd been a raid the previous night on a northern industrial town or a, a coastal city or something like that. And they made a decision after some discussion in cabinet to actually name Coventry and turn it into something. Now, what they decided to turn it into, given the seriousness of the raid, the cost in human lives and architectural damage in the city itself, was to name the city and actually make a thing out of it. Now, this was partly directed at keeping morale as high as possible in the view of such a serious raid, but also it was directed not just at the British public, but at America, which at that point was still teetering on the edge of giving massive assistance to Britain in terms of weaponry, planes, all the stuff that America could manufacture, which we desperately needed at that point to oppose the German raids and also the potential German invasion. Coventry was turned into this international coast celebre. What they did basically was, firstly, of course, was a very important industrial city a city that was key to the British war effort at that time. All sorts of things were being made in factories which had been converted from making cars and radios and things like that into making stuff for the war effort. But the British, of course, didn't really want to emphasize that. So what tended to get out of Coventry were pictures of the destruction of the cathedral, the mass burials in the London Road Cemetery in Coventry, things like that. I mean, almost 600 people had been killed, which was not shocking by standards later in the war, but certainly at that stage in what was considered extremely shocking. And that worked. The Americans did, in fact, the Senate was persuaded to approve Roosevelt's plans to send massive aid to Britain without actually joining in the war, of course, yet for another year or more. What was also emphasized in the case of Coventry was, you know, the so-called blitz spirit, the uh, community aspect of things, which, and, and Coventry again, was an anomaly because it had in many ways teetered on the edge of panic within 24 hours of the raid. A city held together, but people were frightened. People were trying to get out of the city. It was really only the, the next night when the Germans didn't come back, largely because of bad weather, that the city pulled itself properly together. I think a lot more of this probably went in other cities too in the immediate aftermath of bombing raids, which are very shocking, traumatic and disorientating events. The whole thing was to emphasize the blitz spirit, to minimize the damage, emphasize that any damage that had been done to important war industries and to important infrastructure could be dealt with relatively quickly, and that we must see this through. The bombings and atrocities carried out by the barbarous Germans led to a surge in anti-German feeling. In May 1942, the public were already out for revenge. On the whole, the public, in both raided and unraided areas, strongly favours the bombing of Germany on an ever-increasing scale, despite the possibility of reprisals. The RAF's destruction of workers' homes and non-military targets, whether by accident or design, seems to be regarded with resignation or indifference rather than with regret. A minority doubt the wisdom and ethics of such a policy. Towards the end of the war, the raids the public had wanted happened. In 1945, the Royal Air Force carried out raids on the German city of Dresden. They were more lethal than anything the Luftwaffe had done. In fact, they were pretty much inspired by it, as Fred Taylor explains. The middle classes, I think, in many cases, were shocked by the attack on Dresden. You mustn't forget that it was a popular tourist and cultural destination before the war. Many of them would have been there uh, on, 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 on holidays, you know. And even to finishing schools, Violet Bonham Carter, daughter of the uh, First World War Prime Minister Asquith, was said to have, I don't know, it's an apocryphal story, but it's said that she rushed round to Downing Street, the 
day after the attack on Dresden, banged on the door and insisted on haranguing Churchill, who she'd known very well since she was a girl, to the effect that how dare he bomb Dresden, it was a wonderful place. And she had been to a Finnish teaching school there as a teenager before the First World War. Dresden is a complicated thing. Again, it's always complicated, but particularly in this case, they did have a lot more industry than most people thought. Indeed, for many years after the war, they thought it was all just porcelain and fancy buildings. I think that made it stand out. Churchill himself acknowledged later on that, and in, in particularly in the context of Dresden, that you know they didn't want to be accused of terror bombing and they had to be careful not to do that. And there was an attempt to control that after the bombing of Dresden. I mean, the, not as many people were killed as some post-war estimates said. It's probably between eighteen and 25,000, which, goodness knows, is an awful lot of dead people, mostly civilians. The British government did feel a need to minimize it. There were a couple of missteps, shall we say, immediately after the raid. One particular RAFPR man gave a press conference at which he came pretty close to hinting that they would deliberately been aiming at the streams of refugees passing through Dresden, retreating from the Eastern Front, whereas, of course, the Russians were pushing towards Berlin even at that stage of 1945. And that was reported in the American press as amounting to an admission of terror bombing and caused quite a kerfuffle in the States. It wasn't released in England, although it got around the newspaper offices because Associated Press had carried the story. And there was a great deal of quiet outrage about that. And then again, the beginning of March, Richard Stokes, the Labour MP, brought the whole subject up in Parliament and put it on the record that way. It hadn't actually been properly covered in the British press until then. It was a gradual unravelling. But whether ordinary people felt that much about it, I doubt it. I think the attitude was fairly vengeful. I mean, in the sense that Britain was still taking a pasting, actually. I mean, the V1s and V2s were still hitting London and did until the end of March. The scale, and again, it's interesting to compare it with Coventry, the scale of the British attacks in that particularly 1944 and 45, were way beyond anything that the Germans had felt able to mount in 1940-41. The Germans had established how you do it, how you attack a city like Coventry, and they'd set out a blueprint, so to speak. The British looked at that blueprint. I mean, you know, there's plenty of evidence that the high command of the Air Force looked at the German methods and thought, hmm, we can do this to them. And they did, and they just got much better at it. They had bigger bombers. They had more of them. And so the figures went from a few hundreds in the average raid during the Blitz over Britain in 1940-41 to many, many thousands, even tens of thousands, dying in British raids on major German towns and cities. If you go to the Imperial War Museum or Churchill's War Rooms, as you exit through the gift shop, there's one image you can't avoid. Keep calm and carry on. That poster was designed at a time when the government feared it was losing the ability to shape public opinion. By the end of 1940, home intelligence was warning that it was extremely important to avoid heartening talk at all. So great was the mistrust of government communication. And the story of that poster isn't all it's cracked up to be either as Henry Irving, a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, told me. Officially, it didn't get used at all. It was a slogan that was coined in the summer of 1939, and it was kept in reserve. And then as the war sort of played out, the posters didn't get used. Um, And we think that most of them actually were recycled. uh, So they were pulped and then reused in other formats. Why did it not get used? I think the main problem was that the slogan was designed for a war that didn't actually start in the way that most people were expecting. So it was a slogan designed to greet a war that began with devastating aerial bombing. And actually, in September 1939, that was not the case. The war started in a much more ambiguous way. And it was realised that the slogan didn't fit that context. So the decision was to keep it back just in case it was to be needed. But in fact, it was never used. No, and I think that is, I mean, it's partly to do with the pattern of the war, but it's also partly to do with an increasing understanding of how civilians actually felt about the conflict and the extent to which they needed or didn't need to be told what to think. And the poster, I think, betrays a scepticism on behalf of the British government about 
British civilians about whether or not they would be able to cope with a conflict, a sort of global conflict. And in reality, I think actually people did cope with the, the privations of war. So it was felt that this type of slogan wasn't needed. They didn't need to be hectored into feeling something that they already felt. The two that were released um, didn't get a particularly good reception. One of them, which was freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might, was seen as being too abstract. It, it didn't really sort of fit the way that people were feeling. And the second, which was a very long-winded poster, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. This was felt, again, to be a little bit too wordy and also to impose a distinction between the governments, the, the sort of the us will bring us victory and the people who were to be, you know, whose efforts were being relied on to do it. And this was picked up by a lot of intelligence reports at the time, by newspapers. And there was a huge criticism, actually, of the, the tone and the temper of this campaign. Because it felt as if the working class was being talked down to. Yeah, I, th I think there is certainly a class dimension there. But I mean, even just more broadly, I think one of the interesting things when you look through the intelligence reports is that there's hostility across the board. So even those who were pretty educated members of the middle class who would have been in you know, fairly privileged positions, they also didn't like these posters. They felt that it didn't speak to them. So it's a case where actually I think the campaign alienated a lot of groups. And that's something which cuts across those class divides. But 60 years on, the Keep Calm and Carry On poster now seemed to say something important about British resilience and stoicism. It's on posters, tea towels, mugs. It's rewritten for memes. What is it about this slogan that appeals to us so much and that it even seems to convey something fundamental about being British? The poster was rediscovered in the early 2000s. And I think by that point, the Second World War was being thought about in very different ways. It had been almost sort of brought into British national identity and keep calm and carry on seemed to tie in with our expectations of the way that people behaved during the war. I asked Fred Taylor whether the Blitz spirit was the whole story. Yes, there was a core of truth to it. But my goodness, I think things wavered from time to time. For instance, there was a huge amount of crime in British cities during the war with the blackout and lots of stuff lying around that was worth stealing. That sort of thing, I think, also has to be taken into account. I don't go quite as far as saying the Blitz spirit was a myth, but it was a mixed thing. It was something that, thank goodness, more or less held the line in the cities and stopped them from disintegrating. Keep Calm and Carry On wasn't the only iconic poster that wasn't actually used during the war. One poster that we see a lot was deemed just too sexy for the war effort, as Lucy Noakes explains. There was a really famous poster, a recruitment poster for the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, which actually the Queen joined towards the end of the war, but which was seen as being the least glamorous of the women's services. It was attached to the army. They wore khaki, had a lot of working class women. A lot of the jobs in the ATS were were quite dull. They were kind of cooking and cleaning and kind of typical women's work. So the graphic artist Open Games just brought in to try to kind of make this more glamorous and does this incredibly kind of like sexy, glamorous image of a blonde woman in red lipstick advertising the ATS and it's never released. They decide this is far too kind of sexy and sexualized and they don't want this up on the tube stations and things because it might give women and men the wrong idea about the kinds of the kinds of women that are joining the ATS. Women had to be glamorous, but not too glamorous. With conscription for women being introduced at the end of 1941. And that was particularly targeted at young, what they called mobile women, so young unmarried women. You could then be sent to work in a factory, for example, at the other end of the country, kind of living in a hostel with other women. So there was a lot more kind of social freedom and sometimes sexual freedom for some women. But at the same time, women were having to walk this really kind of complicated tightrope. So they were both meant to be kind of active participants in the war. So if you like, the wartime economy really needed women's labour. It needed women in the factories, it needed women in agriculture, and it needed women in the military services as well. But at the same time, the male combatants are being told that one of the things that you're fighting for, one of the main things you're fighting for, is not just to defeat fascism or imperial Japan. You're fighting for home and for country and for family and if that all looks like it's being kind of turned upside down and the women that you've gone away to fight for aren't the same women that you left, that's difficult for propaganda. And again, they were worried that would be difficult for the morale of men in the services. So women had to be kind of all things to all people. They had to be these sort of willing participants in the war. 
They had to be kind of, you know, often working a double shift. Although women with, with small children weren't conscripted, a lot of women were still working. So they could be doing that kind of double shift of, of eight hours in the factory and then back home trying to feed your children. That was, you know, an awful lot of queuing in the war, trying to kind of keep up with the housework or the rest of it. And at the same time, you're meant to still be kind of feminine and, and to an extent glamorous also not too glamorous if you're too glamorous then the concern is that you're you know you're not a not seen as being kind of serious about winning the war there was a lot of concern that you know some women were kind of profiting from it they were enjoying themselves too much but also that you know if you're too glamorous you might not be as faithful to the man who's kind of out there fighting for you a woman who was too glamorous might attract a man who wasn't british and perhaps wasn't white oversexed overpaid and and over here yeah there was a lot of worry both about kind of gis in general and then, uh, you know, because of the sort of pervasive racism, I suppose, of the time, although we do like to tell ourselves that we were not racist to black GIs, there was an awful, awful lot of anxiety about, particularly about the kind of the, the attraction of the kind of, you know, the other, the black GI and how attractive he might be to to white women. And then, of course, you know, when, when some British women do have children with black GIs or with black servicemen who've come from from parts of of the empire then some of those children manage to stay with their mothers some of the mothers manage to stay with the fathers but an awful lot of those children are, are adopted during and at the war's end because it's seen as you know in the, the horrible term of the time miscegenation and yeah kind of weakening weakening the strength of the british race but in the decades after the war women's role was again sidelined War again became a man's business. In the case of British comics, a boy's business. There was a lot of jingoism where the Far East was concerned, a lot of racism. Pat Mills is one of the giants of British comics, a writer and editor who created the science fiction weekly 2000 AD in the 70s, revitalising British comics. But before 2000 AD, weekly war comics dominated the market. For the best-selling battle picture weekly, Mills created Charlie's War, a strip that was unusually about the First World War. It broke with the past because for the first time it didn't depict soldiers as heroes. I intended to carry Charlie's War on into World War II. It was my view that World War II was, and to this day is, glorified in a way that is not appropriate, and it can take a critical pair of eyes on it in the way that I did with Charlie's War in World War I. And so I looked at all the research material and I could find very little that was critical of World War II. The only way I could really get to the truth of World War II and show the critical side alongside the glorification was to talk to British Legion veterans. And I'd already had some success in that direction. A few of them had told me some things that I thought, you know, you're not likely to come across in The Longest Day or A Bridge Too Far or any of these other films, which, magnificent as they are, only show one side of the, the coin. For the men who'd actually fought in the war, things were more complicated, as Fred Taylor explains. They didn't have that kind of idealised view of things. They all, you know, all, almost every male of my father's generation had served in one capacity or another in the forces and they weren't exactly cynical but they knew perfectly well that not everybody was a hero and that there was also incompetence and occasional cruelty and all kinds of things that got you know ironed out when the legends came to be made about the war in the 50s and 60s in comics and in films germany was still the enemy in reality of course it was our ally Britain badly wanted to join the early European community. Too bad that France's General de Gaulle wouldn't let us in. Finally, England has asked to join the common market, but on her own terms. That poses a very big problem for both the six members and for England herself. England is an inward-looking country. She is a maritime nation. She has trading links with a wide variety of countries, often very far away. 
as Germany emerged from the war and began to rebuild its economy, a kind of grudging admiration sprang up in Britain for German scientific and industrial prowess. This was the post-war revival Germans call the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic miracle. Before the Second World War, you had a sort of relationship between the two countries where Germany looked up to Britain as this economic powerhouse, this, you know, the country of industrialization uh, in the sort of when German travel writers will go to London, they, they sort of say this whole country is a big machine. Everyone is, everything works so efficiently, so smoothly. These people are a little bit cold, but they, everything works so well. Philip Altman is the Guardian's Berlin correspondent. That stereotype sort of reverses after the Second World War, because now it's the Brits who look at Germany and see a country that has sort of managed to get up on its feet surprisingly quickly. They realize its economy starts to, to boom in the, um, in the 50s and, and 60s, and it becomes this, this country that's associated with production, with efficient industrial uh, production. And, you know, that's particularly symbolized by the, the rise of German car manufacturing, which increases something like sevenfold between 1951 and 1961. And then Germany in 1953 becomes Europe's largest maker of cars. And I think, you know, the, the Brits look at that and, and recognize with a sort of pang of nostalgia, they recognize something of their own country when they look at Germany. It's bewildering, this multitude of fine cars, more than holding their own in the world's most competitive industry. Manufacturers are now concentrating their gaze on the lands across the channel, where in all probability, great new markets, the common market, await those who can deliver the right goods at the right price. That was the 1962 Earl's Court Motor Show. In fact, Britain wouldn't join the European community for another 13 years. It's reflected in, in, in a lot of pop culture at the time, you know, Italian job. 1969 is obviously a sort of advert for British car manufacturing. It was an attempt to sort of sell, you know, the the Mini, really. It's, there's a little, I think there's a shot that most people miss right at the beginning of the film where you see a little uh, Volkswagen Beetle on the side of the road, but it's stranded, it's run out of gas. So maybe that's a little slide. But Alec Isigonis, the, the inventor of the Mini, around the time that he was developing the, the Mini, he wrote a little pamphlet sort of poo-pooing, the Beetle, which you know was on the way to become a big success at the time, and but he felt it was it was a terrible car. He said, you know, he, he felt he'd invented the, this sort of first people's car, you know, the, the 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 cheap but efficiently, smoothly running, safe little car. He felt he'd done that with the Mini, and he sort of wrote a little you know, this diatribe really of how he thought that everything was sort of the wrong way around in 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 the Beetle. Maybe the Mini was the better designed car, but I think a lot of it had to do with production and you know if you compare sort of car factories in the 60s and 70s i think there was a there was a feeling that british car manufacturing was just behind it's just you know that the, the sort of germans started to earn their reputation for efficiencies because they just had better they had more modern equipment putting cars together and they had they also had managed to have better working relations perhaps slightly more motivated workforce in those factories workers who were able to go on, on works councils and so on. So, so maybe, yeah, the Mini maybe was the better designed car, but the executions, the Germans were certainly better. But when it came to culture, the Germans were much keener on British exports than we were on theirs. The first thing that's misunderstood is that there is a great love of all things British in Germany that is sort of doesn't always come out in, in football because that's the wrong place to look, perhaps. But I think there's a sort of deep Anglophilia that runs through German society, which is sort of you know recognition that uh, the, the music we listen to has is 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 all based on on British rock and pop. We read newspapers in Germany that were essentially modelled on the British press after the Second World War, so built the you know Europe's best-selling tabloid was really a copy of the daily mirror originally and i think even when we watch television you know british british series are immensely popular here and even though german television is very highly funded there's always a sort of despair that it doesn't produce anything as watchable as the brits managed to do and even in football i think you know i think we in germany we we, we rejoice uh, winning against england on on penalties in the way we used to 
precisely because there's a there's a fundamental sort of recognition that England is the motherland of our own national sport. So I think that's something that that I think the Brits often sort of overlook. I mean, there's also you know loads of Germans go or used to, before Brexit used to go to to English university. This is sort of considered you know a real plus on your CV. You can see it with this generation of politicians who are in power now. Ursula von der Leyen went to LSEs as the Germany's foreign minister, uh, Annalena Baerbock. The comedian Al Murray has written a book about the Second World War. I asked him why Nazis are such a staple of British comedy. From Dad's Army to Faulty Towers to Mitchell and Webb's, are we the baddies now? What on earth do we make of the Germans? How on earth do we fit them into our into our worldview? As you say, given all the terrible things we discovered they'd done. Whistle while you work. Hitler is at work. He's half army, so's his army. Whistle while you work. Your name will also go on the list. What is it? Don't tell him, Pike. Pike. <laughs> By keeping the Nazis at arm's length, the hugely popular BBC series Dad's Army helped transform them from a thing of unimaginable evil to the butt of comedy. I asked Al Murray what it tells us about Britain and Germany. We're able to laugh at the Second World War because in a way it's part of us culturally processing it and also there's a feeling that there's no flies on us for having fought and won the Second World War. You know, if you're going to have a foundation myth, it might as well be the one where you destroy Nazism. I mean, we've talked about this a lot on my podcast. We have ways of making you talk with James Holland. I mean, even the name of our podcast reflects comedy Nazi kind of jargon or British comedy Nazi jargon. We've got so good at laughing at Nazis that we often forget how much of the Second World War wasn't fought in Germany or anywhere near it. I asked Al Murray about the parts we overlook or that just don't fit the narrative. Oh, gosh. How long have we got? The war in Burma, the campaign in Burma, is a really, really fascinating case in point because we don't really know anything about it. And when it gets discussed, it gets framed in terms of the British 14th Army fighting in Burma and, and defeating the Japanese. And in fact, the 14th Army was was the Indian Army. So it was an army of India, principally an army of Indian volunteers and Chinese soldiers who fought alongside the British and Americans in Burma. And the multi-ethnic force that fought in Burma is a thing people outside of military history I don't think know about at all. You also have this fascinating thing where Indian men are volunteering, basically on the understanding that the deal is, after the war, independence. My service is buying me independence. In the way that you sort of get in Britain this idea that serving in the war will get you a welfare state, kind of. That sort of, that sort of evolves during the last three years of the war, that, that notion because of the beverage report and because of the army education board and all that sort of stuff, and men having political symposiums in their platoon level, which is really an education session, is really, really interesting. Although when the extent to which anything paid any attention is, is moot. But, but that we don't know about that Indian war or the Indian army's involvement in the war in Burma, because the Indian army went from being an imperial reserve for the British Empire that it would use in North Africa or in Persia and places, you know, because we really ought to use the old names because it's part of that imperial history. And it went from doing that to having to defend India. And so the relationship was immediately changed imperially between the Indian soldier who'd been a professional soldier who sent, like like the modern-day Gurkhas, sent wherever we needed them, to actually a a defence force defending a country which immediately had... So you had to define the country, you had to outline what the country was and what the deal was for the soldier. And that's so interesting. I think that's so fascinating. And, of course, in India, that's sort of been crowded out by the history of partition and independence, completely understandably, and also, therefore blanked from our cultural memory of what what happened during the second world war that's just i mean that's just just one example that feeds into modern british politics and and multicultural racial politics in this country too you know where does that fit in our perception of india pakistan and the people who've come to hear from india and pakistan there's a famous 1941 cartoon by david lowe of a british soldier defying the waves it's captioned very well alone but britain was never really alone It had munitions and supplies from the US and people in what were called the Dominions, in other words, the self-governing countries in the empire. During 1940, when land invasion seemed a real possibility, the Dominions were seen as a refuge. The story of city evacuees being sent to the countryside is taught in schools. 
It's part of our collective memory of the Second World War. But the original plan was much bigger. Over 200,000 children were registered with the Children's Overseas Receptions Board and were going to be sent to Australia, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa. In the end, only 2,500 actually left. The scheme was halted when two of the ships carrying children were torpedoed, killing 81 of them. Britain went into the war, not on its own, not, you know, the kind of very well alone myth that that develops in 1940, but it went to war at the head of the world's biggest empire. And when Britain went to war, all the rest of that empire went to war in one way or another at the same time. The Imperial War Museum recently revamped its Second World War galleries. Historian Lucy Noakes was one of the advisors. One of the first things you see when you go into the new Second World War galleries is a big kind of information plaque that just says Britain was never alone and goes on to explain about the extent and the power of the British Empire. If you know about how the Chinese Communist Party viewed how America and the British treated China during the Second World War, you might understand better some of their attitude towards the Western powers a little bit more clearly. Kasia Tomashevich says three different narratives emerged after the war. There is the the foundational narrative of the People's War, which is that the people stood together against fascism, the British people stood against fascism and fought in the Second World War and they were awarded the welfare state afterwards. You have the People's Empire narrative, which was very much spread during the Second World War, had its origins in wartime propaganda as well. So I don't know if you've seen the Together poster where there's soldiers marching, very much used during the Second World War, soldiers marching of different ethnic origins marching together and it says together over the top and it was this idea that there was a people's empire that was like fighting fascism but then there was also this third strand which is a kind of right-wing Churchillian narrative that came out of that time that was we are an imperial nation that we are a warrior nation that we are fighting and we have a kind of rightful supremacy I guess in a new world order. Most importantly Britain never stood alone during the war. We asked the empire for help and it gave it. Despite what we were fighting against, anti-Semitism and racism bubbled under the surface. And the blitz we endured inspired more than just stoicism. It was a model for the even greater bombing raids that we launched on Germany. We didn't keep calm and carry on. But the belief that we, and only we, were responsible for the defeat of Germany took hold and set us up for decades of Anglo-German rivalry, some of it comic, some of it deadly serious. And that proved very useful when it came to Brexit. To put it bluntly, the people arguing for Britain to leave the EU had a problem. It isn't easy to get the public excited about how exactly to leave a trading bloc. The detail is boring. Few of us understand it. Even fewer want to. So instead of making Brexit about trade, the Leave campaign made it about a great escape. Something changed though on Friday. Mr Cameron may not know it, but we are on now on course... Britain is going to make the great escape. We're going to get out of this union. We'll be the first European country to get our freedom back. I suspect many others will follow. And then what we'll have is our democracy back, our liberty back, and we'll have influence in the world as you lot head for disaster. That was Nigel Farage addressing the European Parliament in 2011. Brexit was a chance for us to stand alone while the rest of Europe suffered under German domination. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr Cameron? demanded the son when the PM extracted a few promises on freedom of movement. And then one man who had long compared himself to Winston Churchill proved particularly willing to invoke World War II. I think that if Monsieur Hollande wants to administer punishment beatings uh, to anybody who chooses to escape, rather in the manner of some sort of World War II movie, uh, then, then I, you know, I, I don't think that that is the way forward. Michael Gove said it was just a witty metaphor, but Johnson had already set the tone for the pugnacious, Britain-alone approach he'd come to adopt as Prime Minister. By the time MPs were making last-ditch attempts to stop Britain crashing out of the EU without a deal, he was referring to the Surrender Act. On Brexit Day in January 2020, Nigel Farage told supporters, The war is over. We have won, as military vehicles circled Parliament Square. There would be sunlit uplands when we left the EU there would be jam tomorrow. Some on the Remain side tried to paint the European project as an insurance policy against the horrors of another world war. But it was too late. The pain had been long forgotten and only the pride of victory remained. 
I wonder if the Leave Corps would have been able to seize control of the public imagination without our abiding obsession with World War II. And I wonder if the ex-soldier I met at Victoria Station is still alive. You might think that as people who remember the Second World War die, we'll struggle to keep it alive in the public imagination. But the historians I talked to told me that, paradoxically, it could make us more honest about the emotional impact of the war. Now I think we're beginning to connect in a more emotional way with the experiences of, of, I guess, of all of those who went through the Second World War, and increasingly as the war generation die off. Because I think we're really, we're really feeling their absence already, you know, we're really missing them. As the veterans go, there, there are so few veterans left. Then once they've gone, it may, it may, it's like they're like a sort of sheet anchor that you can grab hold of the line and go right back to when it was happening. And as they go, that connection is changing. I mean, one of the things, my, my, my father studied what happened to my mother's father. Oh, it's a little complicated, this, but my mother's father was killed in the fighting outside Dunkirk in 1940 in a town called Harzerbrook. And it was very difficult to pin down a history of what happened, basically because all the officers, commanding officers, were still alive and their reputations needed to be protected. And people were being kind to them because they'd made such a mess of things. And then when they, start, when they started dying, you were able to actually be probably a little more truthful about what happened. And I think that, that may be part of the process as we get further away from the event. But, you know, there'll always be people who, who say, leave Churchill alone and all that sort of bollocks, which is such a tedious, it's not even a debate. It's, a, it's people throwing shapes. You know, I think inevitably it will change. It has to change. It has to change. Maybe that veteran was right when he said it was nothing like they tell you. Maybe only when it passes out of living memory will we be able to stop mythologising the war and see it as the terrible but utterly transformational period that it really was. In the next episode of Jam Tomorrow, I'll be looking at the biggest thing created after the war, a huge organisation that for many of us defines what Britain is and what it ought to be. Every poll puts the NHS at the top of the things the British people are proud of. And yet we are all almost allowing this terrible situation. Next time, probably the most urgent problem in Britain today, where the NHS went right and where it went very wrong. I'm Ros Taylor. See you next time for more Jam Tomorrow. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jay Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, with artwork by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI and digital website. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.